Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. Today we're talking about cancer, um, how you get it, how you screen for it, how you know if you have it. Yeah. Um, so this is a topic that we consider kind of like a um, one of the main principles of our clinical practice, individualized medicine. You look at what is common and... Um, you try to prevent common things from happening. In medicine, we sometimes we call these horses and zebras. So um, unfortunately for the average individual, uh, cancer is a relatively common occurrence and a, actually a relatively common cause of death along with cardiovascular disease. So in the past few months, we've uh, kind of hyper-focused on cardiovascular disease, but within our practice, we also do um, the best that we can to help prevent and screen and early detect for cancer, which are all kind of different things. Yeah, cancer is one of those things where some papers will suggest that it is going to be the leading cause of mortality in the United States as we get better and better at preventing heart disease. Uh, mm -hmm. Right now it's heart disease by a fair margin, thinking of things like heart attacks and strokes, um, but cancer is close behind and looking at the risk factors, um, you can see why this might be growing. Um, yeah. you know, number one is tobacco smoking. You know, we've known about this for a long time now and the, the proportion of the population that is smoking has sort of dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. And, um, hopefully at some point it will be an even smaller slice or perhaps go away entirely. Yeah. Uh, but next we have a lot of things that are, uh, environmental. So things that people are doing or exposed to in their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, and we can put this chart up on the screen. Um, as people can see, excess body weight is the second leading risk factor. So that's becoming more and more common. We've done podcasts on obesity in the past. But um, of note, there's also a good comparison. We'll do this in the future for our fertility and antepartum podcast. We'll have a whole series on fertility, uh, you know, conception, antepartum, uh, the delivery period, and postpartum as well as that's been a huge part of my practice, delivered a couple hundred babies, um, done a lot of uh, fertility treatments, um, done uh, a lot of uh, you know care during that period. But anyway, all that said to say the risk of birth defects, certain types, and also certain types of um, you know perinatal outcomes um, are roughly equal if you look at um, smoking a moderate amount and having a significant amount of maternal obesity. So it kind of makes sense. Uh, these are two things, not just for cancer, but for other health outcomes that can be very detrimental. Yeah. I, I've heard this talked about as like epigenetic imprinting where you have um, a mother or, and a father who all of the cells that will make up their children and then eventually grandchildren are yeah. present in that environment, whether that environment's being exposed to tobacco smoke or being exposed to inflammatory cytokines and oxidative stress from obesity. Mm -hmm. um, you do have a metabolic sort of imprinting on your offspring in that way. So second place, I, I suppose, in terms of increasing cancer risk is excess body weight, followed by alcohol, followed by ultraviolet radiation, mm -hmm. sunlight. Uh, and Especially then, certain types of cancer. Yeah. Tanning beds fall into this too. Tanning yep. beds have a, an outsized negative effect. And then you have poor diet, um, infections. These are things like 
um, HPV, different viruses, yep. and then physical inactivity. And there's a lot of overlap between the excess body weight, uh, the poor diet, and physical inactivity. That's sort of your you know, triad of obesity. Yeah. So um, as you might imagine, um, and as I can also imagine, a lot of individuals that have cancer early in life tend to have many of these risk factors. Um, modifying them, just like in hormone optimization, um, just like for cardiovascular disease, is the most powerful intervention that you can have. More powerful than any medication or supplement is going to be your lifestyle interventions or your pillars of health, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, things that are not very sexy and things that are not going to make a uh, big pharma or big supplement very much money. Yeah, but big pharma does have, I guess they have pills too, but most people are talking about injections now that yep. they don't make people eat healthy foods, but they make them eat less bad food, mm -hmm. um, which in many cases can be a net positive, but not without risk, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so we need two more pills to complete the reversal of the, the health of society. We need a pill that makes people eat healthy foods and a pill that Ooh. makes people exercise. Ooh. So you have people eating less, now you just need the other two pills and then you've sort of solved the problem. Maybe that'll be mm -hmm. Neuralink. Maybe it won't be a pill after all. If something forces you to want to do something, are you really doing it? How disappointed would you be? You're driving to Wendy's thinking about the Baconator and then all of a sudden Neuralink takes over. You leave the drive through with a salad. Hmm. But the salads are just as unhealthy. Because of the seed oils? <laughs> because of the high caloric content. Um, yeah, no, that would be pretty disappointing, but yeah, we're probably not going to have those pills anytime soon, whether you're red pilled or blue pilled or black pilled, or I forget what the other colors of pills are. <laughs> um, those pills are, uh, there's no replacement for consistency. So, um, uh, people can see when we've talked about our, uh, 75 hard years instead of 75 or 75 medium years and medium, our, medium rare years, yeah, something like that. You don't want to have them be uh, too difficult and ideally not days, but years. But yet uh, all that to say, consistency is key with those lifestyle interventions. Yeah. And then you have things that you can't modify, right? At least right now, your genetics. Mm -hmm. So family history, I think, is a, a part that people look at, um, at least primary. So, you know, mom, dad, grandparents, siblings, you know, you think of those as carrying a bit more weight. Uh, yeah. But you also want to look at you know, cancers that are maybe in an aunt or an uncle or a great grandparent, because there's probably some effect size there. It may not be a huge hazard ratio. Um, and then by the, on the same token, if you see a certain type of cancer that runs in a family, people get cancer at early ages, you're thinking you know, this person needs to be screened earlier than usual. And if some of the guidelines we'll talk about, like with colon cancer, that family history does come into play. Um, and then yep. there's the known genes. So yep. Yeah, it's surprisingly not a huge amount, but well yeah. clinically validated. It's you know, somewhere between, uh, what, 50 and 80 genes now? Yeah. Um, there are many genes that have uh, significantly increased risk of certain types of cancers. Often, if you have one, it's more than one type of cancer that is increased risk. The most common example is BRCA, BRCA1, BRCA2. And if you have one of these genes, regardless of your male or female, depending on if it's BRCA1 or BRCA2, there's certain types of cancer in addition to breast cancer that you're also at higher risk of. So um, there's a couple ways that you test for these, but in general, um, 
in, in general, you wouldn't test for these if you have no increased risk of cancer. If you have not a lot of family history, um, but you have a little bit and you're also at very increased risk, that's a conversation you can have with your healthcare provider. But if you have a very strong family history, for example, if you have a lot of breast cancer, or ovarian cancer, or whatnot, or even colon cancer, then you're a great candidate for these uh, screening panels. And the service that we have, uh, that we're using, there's, there's multiple ones that you can do. And then in general, you wanna stay away from polygenic risk scores, but we use Invitae. Yeah, and th this is not like your 23andMe. These are not direct to consumer. These no. tests are you know, important enough or, or have enough weight to them that they don't want people to just be ordering these willy-nilly without having access to you know, a, a provider that can sort of talk about, you know, what are the risks of this? I mean, if you found out that you're at risk for a you know, certain type of cancer, that can have a heavy psychological impact. So yes. you really have to screen and think about the person that you're talking to. Absolutely. Um, if you have a relatively small patient panel, get to know everybody a little bit um, and, you know, who specifically has a lot of health anxiety that, you know, probably is going to have a worse quality of life, you know, getting this test, waiting for the results, mm -hmm. finding something that is, you know, wrong or, or bad in their genetic history. Yep. So, you know, you have to know your patient population there. And I think it's important also, you said that BRCA, you know, everyone thinks of women and breast cancer, but it's multiple cancers and mm -hmm. also um, in men and women. So, you know, the risk goes both ways. So a male with a BRCA gene is going to also have an increased risk of, I know, at least pancreatic cancer and yep. a couple of others. Yeah, that's a good summary. Um, and a lot of it comes down to knowing your patient and you'll see that as a recurring theme, whether it is genetic testing, whether it is uh, screening family history, asking about um, their habits, you know, their smoking social history, history exactly. where they work. Yeah, you need to know, you need to know your patient well. Um, that way you can adequately advise them. Should they get this, you know, potentially harmful prostate cancer screening or full body MRI, um, like a Pernuvo or an Ezra. Um, but yeah, you really Which, have It's to... actually easier to get a full body MRI than it is to get a genetic cancer test. Yeah. Um, and both those things are, uh, you know, potentially harmful tests. They can do a decent amount of um, mental harm, uh, mm. you know, uh, quantifiable. And um, they should be ordered after a conversation with your healthcare provider. Um, but yeah, we can go into some guidelines a little bit. Um, I guess since we, before we dive into that too much, I will briefly mention um, that, you know, people think about uh, nicotine or tobacco use as smoking, and that's certainly the highest risk of cancer. But there are studies, including studies from Europe. There's also studies from India. There's a meta-analysis. We'll put all the links in the description. But even smokeless tobacco in some large studies increases the risk of pancreatic cancer and esophageal cancer. So it's not just oral cancer that it's an increased risk for with smokeless tobacco or oral tobacco, snus, I believe it's called. Um, but there's not enough data on um, nicotine. So like vaped nicotine or the Zen pouches that everybody's using. Or a nicotine patch. Yeah, um, there's not enough data on that, but there is proposed mechanisms where even just nicotine at a high enough dose um, is going to release reactive oxygen species. Personally, I certainly wouldn't want more than, you know, probably 10 to 12 migs of nicotine over the course of a week, ideally not exposed daily as well. Uh, I think that's a higher upper limit than I would even personally try. I, I was thinking maybe 
six migs over a, a week time period. But that's a that's a much better at, at that dose. I don't know if you would be able to see for. an effect size because there is also the concept of you know hormesis, where yep. exercise generates some you know reactive oxygen species that are involved in you know damaging DNA, but the benefits of that and things offset that just like yeah. eating, um, you know, a bowl of berries, your sugar goes up, you know, that's going to generate some reactive oxygen species, but you have a lot of antioxidants, and polyphenols. Yep. There's no polyphenols in nicotine as far as I know, even if it's not berry that, flavored. Not that I know <laughs> of. Um, yeah, it could be dessert flavored. Um, and uh, there's a lot of teenagers that are using these Zen and nicotine pouches yeah, and products. I, uh, I recall yep. coming across these certain flavors were more or less inflammatory mm -hmm. in vitro because yep. they can set these in a dish and see what happens to the cells. I think the menthol was less. Was menthol more or less? I don't remember. It, it depended it on the cytokine, which yeah. is really interesting. And it's all theoretical because it hasn't been translated into, you know, mice or humans, you know, the, the clinical research yet. But I think the dose makes the poison is a common mm -hmm. theme. With smokeless tobacco, it usually presents in the seventh decade of life. So, you know, someone's presumably been using it from for 50 years, from age 20s to age 70s. Mm -hmm. um, and if the same thing is true of nicotine without the other tobacco products and carcinogens, the same will likely be true. So we'll know 40 or 50 years from yeah. now. Hopefully people grow out of vaping yep. by their 70s. Definitely no more than three milligrams of nicotine per day. I think I used to say two milligrams, except apparently the Zen pouches in the US are only three milligrams. Yeah, I was looking at this because I was like, what's the lowest dose thing that I can like go out and, and get or, or for people that are trying to get off of other forms of nicotine or cut their doses down? Yep. And it looks like in the UK, you can get lower dosed nicotine, the same company, I believe even. Um, but then here, it seems like the, the bottom is at three. Um, and I suppose that's because the companies know that Americans really like their nicotine. Yeah, uh, supply and demand. That's probably why. So uh, we should work on that. <laughs> yep. So then we have some you know, basic guidelines. Uh, the USPSTF puts out some guidelines. Uh, some of them you know, really reasonable. Some of them, you know, they, they kind of take a hands-off approach because they want to see the absolute highest level of data supporting something before they put any kind of a recommendation. So mm -hmm. a lot of times they're like, we don't recommend this for this, even though it has an effect on this because the data is not strong enough for their liking. Yep. Uh, but these are things they feel have a lot of good data to support. So primary care clinicians assessing them with personal or family history of breast cancer, um, and certain other cancers for BRCA1 and BRCA2. Yep. Um, that's a discussion. And then genetic counseling is something that you would refer them for after that. Yep. Um, so that's a very reasonable thing. My mom's been screened for BRCA1, BRCA2. She's had breast cancer a few times. I believe I've touched on this in the past, but uh, also given our family history, that was a reasonable thing um, to screen for. So it's good to screen for if you have a, what we call a high pretest probability, a higher than average um, likelihood of it being positive. Yeah. And number two here, I'm going to make an analogy after this one. So they recommend clinicians offer to prescribe risk-reducing medications such as tamoxifen, riloxifene, or aromatase inhibitors for women who are at increased risk for breast cancer mm -hmm. and at low risk for adverse medication effects. Yep. What if we applied this to men and let's say at age 50, uh, you're a male, you've got some prostate cancer, your family history and they say, hey, we're going to put you on androgen deprivation therapy, or we'd like to discuss that with you. Um, uh, how does some Lupron sound? Because it is a risk-reducing mm -hmm. medication. 
Uh, Lupron doesn't sound that good, but what about a little bit of a Nobosarm? A Nobosarm or with a 5-alpha reductase With a little bit of Tlando and some Dutasteride. That's my, that's my stack of choice for an ultra-high-risk prostate cancer individual. Say I had a, a Gleason score 5 prostate cancer on biopsy, but I decided not to operate on it. That would be your medical, people who opt for medical management only, that'd be a yes. more reasonable protocol, or at least for preserving quality of life, because you yep. assume that's always a goal of someone and talk about them what's important to them. Mm -hmm. And people on androgen deprivation therapy yep. feel like crap. And actually a lot of women on uh, these medications can have adverse effects. Yep. So I'm glad that they tagged that last bit yep. on there. Actually, I'll change my stack. And I, I know I've gotten flack in the past for just always going back to prostate cancer, which I don't know why we do that, but... <laughs> Um, it's just a, uh, an easy example to pick. Um, but my stack would be Natesto, not Slando. So Natesto, I, you know, I'd feel pretty good. Um, my, I assume I'd be old enough to where my DHEA wouldn't be high, but if I had some NCCAH, maybe an adrenal stratogenesis cascade inhibitor, perhaps, um, an obos arm and maybe some, uh, you know what my S like my estrogens were, maybe some estriol, or to uh, trigger people, how about some ectosterone, some tricesterone, <laughs> and some beta ectosterone for the beta estradiol receptor agonism. So that's our theoretical stack. Then we have uh, mammography. Uh, so the USPSTF recommends uh, every other year screening for women aged 50 to 74. Uh, and this kind of contrasts with the American Cancer Society, who recommends having a discussion about screening at age yep. 40. So I, uh, I usually at least have a discussion at age 40, even for someone without any other risk factors. Um, the American Cancer Society says start at 45 and then plus or minus at 40. And then um, there's kind of like one camp that does every year, some camps that do every other year. I'm more in the camp that does every year. Yeah, I think I'm on, on the same side because we've gotten a lot better at what we do with these things when they're mm -hmm. caught early. They're not being over-treated and cure rates are very high. Yeah. And obviously the higher, the, the earlier you catch something, the higher those cure rates are. Yeah. If there is a, uh, a lesion that is found, you know, let's say a patient finds a lesion, in general, under the age of 30, um, they recommend ultrasound for evaluation over the age of 30, mammography. You know, if there's a 31-year-old with particularly dense breast tissue, actually, you probably still have to order a mammogram just for insurance. To cover a biopsy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so ignore that. Uh, and then one other <laughs> thing I thought of is if there's a urologist watching, um, just so they don't hear her, does not get triggered, we'll say that uh, prostate cancer that I was not going to operate on, on my theoretical future self, we'll call it a Gleason score like two or three instead of a five. <laughs> <laughs> so just to prevent the comments. So we, we can keep going. Yeah. So then we have uh, cervical cancer screening, which is pretty common with, you know, well woman visits, you know, getting these depending on your risk factors um, and with the you know, reduction of HPV infections, hopefully you'll actually see yep. less of these and also less head and neck cancers. Yep. Um, be careful getting these if, you know, like let's say you're on a heavy period, uh, might be more comfortable, but might, be, might have slightly higher uh, false positive rates. Be careful getting them right after you have intercourse because it's more likely to show up as ASCUS, which is um, basically squamous cells of uh, undetermined significance, like somewhat atypical cells. So 
that's pretty common to see. So, you know, let's say and also under the age of 24, um, there is a uh, this is kind of like a fairly recent update within the last three to five years. Um, it does not always have to go to colposcopy. So it used to be, you know, uh, you're 16, you know, perhaps you're you t have a, a conversation with a physician that you're comfortable with and say you're active, you get a pap. Maybe right after you have intercourse, you have ascus, you have colpo, it's traumatic. Um, colposcopy is not fun if people have not done it. Um, I obviously have not done it, but as someone who's done it, I know that it's not fun. Um, you know, for the right patient, you should even prescribe them a Valium or a Xanax. But um, yeah, uh, key matter is talk to your physician. Um, you know, screening recommendations on this have changed a whole lot now that we have high-risk HPV testing for most people. Once you're, you know, you're getting regular negatives, you go every five years. And this is cervical cancer is also one that's um, heavily affected, obviously by HPV uh, infection, but also by nicotine use. Yeah, and this probably, you know, contrast what the USPSTF is saying contrast with ACOG. You know, the, the ACOG probably has a slightly more um, up to date recommendation because I think they'll retally these things but on a more frequent basis. Yep. So then we have, this is actually a fairly recent change as well, yep. um, colorectal cancer screening. So this is gold standard uh, colonoscopy uh, for people that can't or won't do a colonoscopy. There's the Cologuard. Um, colonoscopy is still the gold standard though, but you know, getting some screening is better than no screening. Yep. Um, and now the age recommendation there is 45. Um, you know, and this is where family history comes into play. If you have someone, let's say your uh, father had colon cancer when he was 50, then your screening actually starts at age 40, 10 years prior to whenever that individual in your family developed yep. colon cancer. They have, um, you know, levels of how good colorectal cancer screening is or CRC screening. I believe one of the so societies that the gastroenterologists mainly run, um, the tier A, a for whatever reason is uh, endoscopy, so colonoscopy and um, fit test yearly, every year, a fecal immunohistochemical test or a FOB. Um, whereas Cologuard for them is category B, but a Cologuard every three years, or certainly, you no know, Cologuard is a better test than a fit test. <laughs> you know, if you did a Cologuard test every year and a fit test every year, Cologuard is going to be way better. But you're so, going to yeah. generate more colonoscopies if you're doing a fit test every year. You are. So that's a, a conversation that you can have with your doctor. But, um, you know, uh, the other positive of a Cologuard is if you're doing it every three years, you're just going to have better adherence because there's not a yearly test that you have to do. The upside of the fit test is most uh, microbiome stool tests also have a fit test in them. So maybe you've already been screened for col colorectal cancer and you don't even realize it. Um, if you eat a lot of nitrites or if you're from uh, some Southeast Asian countries, they also screen for esophageal and gastric cancer with an EGD at the same time. Yeah. And I think a detail I think I recall is with these fit tests, if you have a uh, a large bolus of meat, uh, especially if it's a yep. more rare type of steak, then that can generate a positive fit test. And then you've sort of bought yourself a colonoscopy. Yep. Um, or hemorrhoids or lots of, yeah, lots of things can give ibuprofen blood in yep. the stool besides, um, cancer. Yep. Um, pentosan polysulfate or yeah. they're very high, like 15 plus percent of people on the low end. Yep. Um, uh, that pretty much covers. We have lung cancer. Lung cancer. And this one is very complicated. Like, this is something that was put together by a statistician, you can tell. Yep. So 
uh, you know, don't turn into a statistic. Talk to your doctor about screening for lung cancer. Um, but they have a low dose CT scan. CT scans do have uh, some radiation, more than x-ray. Uh, MRIs do not have any, um, but a low dose CT scan certainly has less than a PET scan or a high dose CT scan. But uh, in general, uh, the current recommendation is a 20 pack year smoking history or more. It used to be 30 pack year smoking history, I believe. Um, they can't have quit for more than 15 years. So if you quit 16 years ago, and you have a 50 pack year smoking history and you're 70, then I guess you don't get screened. So like anything else, you can always kind of like make an exception, but at least at, you know, from an overarching view, 50 to 80 history of relatively heavy smoking makes a lot of sense to screen for lung cancer. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that you do want to catch early when there's perhaps a surgery that could be performed. Yep. Um, and along with a lot of these, whether it's breast cancer, whether it's lung cancer, it also mentions, um, you know, that they have a, a relatively long life expectancy. So if there's someone who is, uh, you know, unfortunately, like in the end of life care stage from another condition, um, then you don't put them through the, um, you know, the anguish of screening them for a cancer that's not going to affect anything regardless of the result. Yeah. So, you I mean, you kind of, as a clinician, ask yourself, you know, how healthy is this person in front of me? And it, they, they set an arbitrary cutoff, you know, sometimes age 75, sometimes age 85. Yep. But what if someone lives to be 110? It, it's more common now that you see these headlines and you know, people that are 100 plus, they say, oh, I did this and this is why I made it to 100 plus. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of have to forecast what this person's health trajectory looks like. So if you've got someone with a uh, in-stage renal disease on dialysis that's diabetic, that just had a BKA, that person is probably not going to make it another 10 years. Uh, but if you have someone who's 85, still goes to the gym every day, they're very, um, you know, they have a lot of vitality to them. They listen to the Gillette Health Podcast. Yeah, you check all those boxes, then that person has a bright future ahead of them. Next is uh, skin cancer or uh, counseling regarding UV. We mentioned tanning beds. Um, really not a great reason to use a tanning bed. There's lots of ways to get the skin to appear slightly more tan that are more safe. Um, but yeah, counseling especially uh, young children, bad sunburns, especially early in life, have a high risk of melanoma. It's like a very severe sunburns. Um, cumulative sun exposure is more of a risk for basal cell and squamous cell. Of course, there's exceptions and there's genetic predisposition, but this is a reasonable thing to do. No, you don't need to be a vampire, daywalker, etc. your entire <laughs> life. It's okay to get uh, a little bit of sun. There's benefits of it as well but you certainly want to limit it. Yeah, or use appropriate protection, right? You can still get your you know, morning sunlight. You don't have to get a morning sunburn. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Yeah, I guess we can kind of compare and contrast to the American Cancer Society a little bit. Um, you know, they're the ones that mentioned, you know, for um, certain groups of patients, let's stop at 75, let's stop at 85. One thing that came up when we were discussing this is, um, Patients that are essentially underinsured, which would be almost everyone who turns 65 and has to be downgraded to Medicare for their insurance, find a new healthcare provider. Um, most people have to switch some people they're grandfathered in, but uh, it is not unusual to see to have somebody walk into a clinic if you take Medicare and say, hey, I had to leave my family doctor that I saw for 35 years because I have Medicare now. And... Um, 
you know, uh, I just want to do my wellness checkup and get my blood pressure checked by the nurse and then leave. Yeah. And you making that switch, you don't have that 30 years of report anymore, the continuity of care. So knowing where someone stands on their, you know, at risk tolerance, how much they want to know, how much they don't want to know. You're basically starting from scratch there. And if you're limited to a short office visit, you know, we can look back at our um, individualized medicine Venn diagram. You have three circles. One is all the possible conditions, all the possible treatments, and mm-hmm. the third being uh, that person, that person's wishes and values. values yeah. Which one of those is going to go away if you are in a time-limited environment? Yeah. Um, next on the list, uh, comparing, contrasting different societies. Uh, we talked briefly about prostate cancer. We haven't really talked about PSAs. Um, I guess you could say that uh, PSA or prostate cancer screen is conspicuously absent from the USPTF screening guidelines. The American Cancer Society basically says do share decision making with your healthcare provider, which we think is excellent. Um, that's essentially what the Urology Society, the AUA, also says. Um, but there's a bit more that you can do for prostate cancer screening. Yeah, like let's say you have a PSA of 4.0. There's a whole bunch of decision trees that you can go down at that point. And it's something that you, you should certainly talk with uh, both your uh, you know, general family practice provider and preventive medicine physician, if um, you're lucky enough to have one, and also urologist. Yeah, and one of the things here also is, you know, PSA velocity, and there's also notes in here about if someone's on finasteride or dutasteride, yep. Yep. Um, which I think, I think the data will, let's say nothing changes in the current healthcare environment. The data would be a mess because of a lot of these direct-to-consumer uh, finasteride you know, mills, I'll just call mm-hmm. them, where you know someone you know, fills out a form, they get their finasteride, their penis falls off, maybe they... <laughs> Maybe they tell their other doctors that they are taking finasteride. Maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if these companies are advising people, you know, report all medications to doctors, uh, people don't always read what is put forth. And if you're not having a conversation with someone, uh, they're less likely to follow through with whatever those instructions are. You know, basically, it's just click and then there's your prescription. Yep. So I, I assume that we'll have some medical advancements that you know improve outcomes in prostate cancer or reduce the incidence of prostate cancer. But the data would be quite a mess because you have all these people that have mm-hmm. been exposed to or are taking, you know, finasteride. And, you know, it's a little bit frustrating, but mm-hmm. I think that I remain optimistic that there'll be some breakthroughs that sort of offset that and make it a non-factor. Yeah. And this could be considered for any antiandrogen, not just finasteride and utasteride. If you're taking a Sustanchi supplement, then that has the potential to affect your PSA as well. Um, it's the, uh, we call it a SARM. It's kind of like a mystery SARM. Who knows where it, it's an agonist and antagonist. Yeah. Uh, it looks like it's definitely an antagonist in the liver though, but, um, uh, spironolactone could of course do this really any antiandrogen. But if you have a, like, let's say you're on a high dose of dutasteride or finasteride and your PSA is over two, that could be the same as a PSA over four. And same thing if you're on a low dose and it's over three. Um, one of the newer tools, people are familiar with MRIs, which are great for monitoring for kind of like the intermediate range. People are familiar with PIRADS for prostate cancer, kind of like BIRADS for breast. Um, uh, but the ISO PSA, which is different than free PSA, which can also be useful, especially in um, older individuals. But the ISO PSA 
is for 50, it's been studied in 50 plus with a PSA over four. And it specifically screens for high, if you have a high grade cancer or not. So if, if you did get a biopsy, what's the likelihood of a very high Gleason score, which is how they stage prostate cancer. So this is something that's used in the context of deciding whether or not to biopsy someone. Yeah. So um, hopefully that's all that we talked about prostate. Quite a few branches there. Um, and then I guess newer ways that are, you know, uh, I guess on the horizon or actually in practice at this point, um, the GRAIL gallery test. Um, there's a lot of multiple cancer early detection tests out there. I think they're all based on cell-free DNA, at least the ones that are clinically available. Um, we like GRAIL. Um, it's one of the ones that has been around the longest. Mm -hmm. They started their studies over in uh, the UK probably what, five plus years ago at this point. Yeah. And then they've had, you know, many, many tests, tens of thousands that have been performed at this point. And the, or the real world performance seems to be matching um, what the clinical studies showed, which mm -hmm. is nice because you don't always see that sort of a matchup. Yeah. So this is uh, kind of like the successor to fetal DNA tests. So they're looking for cell-free fetal DNA. If you get that blood test that's, you know, it's looking for the gender, it's looking for different chromosomal or genetic issues. Um, but early in pregnancy, often late first trimester, whereas this is looking for methylation patterns that are related to tumor. So I think they call it CT DNA, cell so tumor DNA, whatever it, whatever it stands for. It, they're looking for the pattern that's associated with certain tumors. So if you test positive, it can tell you where that pattern is most likely to be. Yeah, somewhere around uh, you know eighty-five to ninety percent of the time, which is a a great number. You know, just from blood tests, knowing that, hey, nine times out of 10, this is going to be, yep. you know, that looks like a liver cancer, it's going to be a liver cancer. Um, pretty good for a lot of GI-related cancers. You know, there's charts you can look at to see uh, things like thyroid cancer. It's not particularly good for, mm -hmm. but it is good for a lot of cancers. And I think the important thing is it screens for cancers that we didn't just mention yeah. in the American Cancer Society yep. or the USPSTF. Yeah, or detects. There's not a ton of carryover. So it's not great at brain, blood-brain barrier, not great at prostate, encapsulated, um, but it's great at things like uh, um, blood dyscrasias, hematologist malignancies, yeah. leukemias and whatnot. It's a blood test. Uh, it's actually pretty relatively Maybe good at pancreatic too, cancer. too sensitive for blood tests in some yeah. cases. I mean, a couple of case reports that we've heard. They've, they've turned it down, um, which has possibly helped a little bit. Slightly less false positives for leukemias, which mm. used to be their highest false positive. But yeah, they're uh, quite good at ovarian cancer, much better than our current, you know, someone who's worried about ovarian cancer. My mom's cousin passed of ovarian cancer in her 40s. Um, you know, it's reasonable that she would be concerned for ovarian cancer, but um, ultrasounds and bimanual pelvic exams are uh, CTs, everything that we have otherwise for ovarian cancer is not good. CEA 125s, not good. Yeah, I, for a while, I think it was going to be a race between the imaging arm and then some sort of a blood marker or some other yep. test. And the and limitation right now on imaging is the resolution, like how you know large does something have to be before you can see it on imaging. Yep. And I think that's around a centimeter, you know, even on the, the best sort of imaging that we yep. have out there, MRIs. I guess we could also note that this isn't really screening tests. They're called early detection tests. So with screening, if you've been to medical school or probably nurse practitioner school, <laughs> maybe they just teach in med school, you want a screening test to have a high sensitivity, so few false negatives and a low cost. So this is the opposite. It has, um, its sensitivity is not 
great. You have a, a pretty high amount of um, false negatives. It can't detect every single cancer under the sun, about half of them. And then it's a very high cost. Yeah. And also the, you know, true positive rate. Um, that's probably my biggest, I guess, bone to pick with the test. You know, every test has its pros and cons. And with this being in its sort of infancy and a new technology, relatively new being applied to cancer anyway, yep. um, the false positive rate, and again, they did refine the algorithm. So initially it was a, a 62% false positive rate um, that has come down to you know 56%-ish. Um, but still, it's a little bit of a, a reality check. Um, you want to make sure people understand that it's truly sort of a, you get a positive test result. It's a coin flip as to whether it's an actual cancer or a false positive. Mm -hmm. um, and you know the, the resolution time, which is a good metric to look at here, yep. it's much quicker in people who have a true cancer. You know, they're picking that up very quickly. Yeah. Um, they do have a good support team there. It's like, okay, you know, this test showed this, get this imaging, mm -hmm. um, you know, facilitating that. And, and we've heard that there's not pushback from insurances. Correct. Because it's in their interest to financially pick up something early, treat it early, as opposed to yep. later on down the road. But for the individuals who had a false positive, the average resolution time, meaning they were told, hey, you don't have cancer, was about 160 days, so almost six months which is a lot of time to you know, potentially worry walking around each day, you know, do I have cancer? Do I not have cancer? Uh, the thing about this, you know, if it was me personally, I would probably, you know, make sure I'm getting my, you know, 30 plus minutes of cardio each and every single day. Uh, probably going to go down to zero alcohol at that time point, you know, just mm -hmm. eliminating every possible thing that I think could fuel a cancer. Yep. Um, you might think about hyperbaric oxygen therapy, yeah. uh, depending. Now, there's yeah. a lot of things you could still do, um, you know, things that you may, you know, if you were living a 10 out of 10, as healthy as possible lifestyle you might be doing anyway. Um, but it could really be, um, you know, a wake-up call for someone. Yeah, uh, and um, they do make the case that this test is, this early detection test is particularly good at early stage cancers. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of case reports of, you know, um, stage one or stage two even pancreatic cancer, which is usually very late. So it is possible that a lot of those false positives, and this is kind of me playing devil's advocate, mm -hmm. are uh, actually cancers that would have developed into a cancer. Maybe they came back positive for HPV-related cancer, but the individual stopped smoking and lived the healthy lifestyle that you mentioned, and uh, the immune system fought it off. Um, extremely early natural immunotherapy. Yeah, natural immunotherapy, which, you know, like we like to say, lifestyle is, you know, the most powerful tool that most people have at their disposal. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's it's either that or, you know, there's going to be some artifact that's in all tests. You know, you see even lab values that we've been getting for decades. You know, every once in a while, you'll see a, a false value where you're like, you know, that doesn't fit this picture. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at, you know, very few people are having an invasive procedure or surgery after getting this. It was one patient out of this entire study that ended up having a surgery uh, that didn't have the cancer. So you think, what is the potential harm here? Yeah, um, arguably less harm than a lot of other cancer screening tests. So I think the important thing here, whether it's this or with a full body MRI, like we'll talk about, is discussing with the patient that it's an early detection test. It's not really screening for all cancers. So you can't say, oh, I've had my Galeri test or, oh, I've had my 
uh, MRI or Pernuvo. So yeah. I am cancer free. I can have a party that I have no tumors whatsoever. <laughs> As just yeah. kind of a way to maybe mock God a little bit too much, but that is certainly not what the test does. But I kind of think of it as a, like, you know, you're going to Vegas and you're betting that money. Um, and it's it's quite expensive. It's almost $1,000 for a Galeri test, depending mm-hmm. on how many your clinic orders and whatnot. It's just the usual rigmarole. Or it's, I think it's almost, uh, it's $2,000 or more for a full body MRI, whether it's Ezra or Pernuvo, they're all generally about the same price. So think about you're going to Vegas and you're spinning a wheel. And if you hit jackpot, you actually test positive, but it's a true positive and you find that cancer. And that's what one out of under 150 times. Yeah. I I think the true positive rate um, is something like people getting a positive test result is like 1.5. And then the true positive rate of that is definitely less than 1%. Yeah, less than 1%. So um, 1 in 150 is a good figure. Those are your odds. So if you're okay with the risks and you want to spin the wheel, if you want to spin both wheels, um, then uh, spin away and perhaps (laughs) you'll win. But, you know, that's a huge win. If you, like, let's say uh, you are in one of the really low percentages, catching that cancer early can make a huge difference, especially if you're... Um, very early on in your health span. Yeah. And to be clear, we really do like the grill test. We do order it and offer it to our patients. Uh, It's just something that we want people to be absolutely certain they know sort of what test they're getting before they get it. You have to have a certain level of understanding. Same Uh, for full body MRIs. Not something you want people to go pick up and get over the counter. Yep. Although now that you've been counseled, wait a second, we just gave them the information to where they can make the decision. Yeah. If they watch this podcast, they are probably, they probably understand more about cancer screening than they got at their annual physical last year. Yeah, uh, certainly. So, um, I guess we haven't talked specifically about obesity and cancer risk. We just mentioned that it's a large risk factor. Um, there are certainly types of cancer that obesity increases the risk the most. None higher so than endometrial cancer, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, a lot of extra aromatase activity happening there. And one that you had pointed out uh, was the oral cavity with a pretty tight confidence interval, yep. um, much, much lower in obesity, you know, about a 20% relative risk reduction. And it then may as we... have not accounted for <laughs> nicotine users, exactly, or methamphetamine as, users, or. As we scroll down the chart, you see a similar hazard ratio for lung cancer, you know, about a 20% relative risk reduction. So being obese is not good for your mouth and lungs. It's just that people who are smokers are less likely to become obese. Yes. So if you're starting smoking to not be obese, to lower your risk, it does not do that. Yeah. That would be a, a bad wager if you're going to Vegas. Yeah. Gallbladder cancer, hugely high risk. That also makes sense. Any sort of biliary issue, so gallbladder issue, much more common in obesity, metabolic syndrome, uh, same for the liver, um, same for almost everything across the board. Colon cancer, uh, breast cancer, interestingly, after menopause. Uh, Thyroid cancer, that also makes sense. More growth agonist, more growth hormone. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, growth hormone seems like a huge risk factor for thyroid cancer, both here when you look at the data um, and also anecdotally. Yeah. It's something that we wondered aloud about when we're thinking about the most popular weight loss agents now, 
Mm -hmm. um, they are actually growth hormone releasing peptides uh, and not talking about research chemicals, talking about FDA approved and prescribed drugs that are in the GLP-1 class. They also seem to increase growth hormone. And the strongest link between those, even though the data is mixed, is between uh, the GLP-1s and thyroid cancer. And that goes Mm -hmm. back to the preclinical model. Um, And I think there's even one meta-analysis on either side of that, where it seemed to be neutral, a wash, and then one seemed to be a link. Um, And people that have a financial interest in prescribing these will say that there's no risk there. But I don't think it's safe to say that just yet. And I I hope that I'm wrong. Um, But I think that there could be a concern. You're definitely losing weight. You're going to lower your risk of all these cancers, cancer globally. Mm But depending on the age, you may slightly increase your risk if you're using a GLP-1 for the thyroid cancer specifically. Yeah. As people know, GLP-1s, one of our favorite medications, one of our favorite peptides. Um, but uh, yeah, when I talked about this in the Protein Bros podcast, there were a lot of people who were upset. They're like, you know, uh, semaglutide enters epitide or mazine and they can't do anything wrong. And they definitely don't raise any cancer risk unless you have multiple endocrine neoplasia. And we don't really know that, especially in the case where you're blasting and cruising your GLP-1. Because, you know, if you sign up for the Weight Watchers or Slim for Life or whatever your cookie cutter or just your med spa, you go to your med spa and you sign up for their GLP-1 program, you get your poor quality compounded uh, semaglutide and you uh, blast it for six months and then cruise and rebound and yo-yo all your weight back. So it's like... uh, you're sparking the inflammatory cascade when you're obese and causing cancer. So you're giving your body every chance to start that cancer and then you're growing it as you're on the semaglutide. So yeah, if you lose the weight and you permanently keep it off, then um, in that scenario, I, I could make a case that, yeah, your overall cancer risk is gonna be much lower. But if you're just gonna be yo-yoing every single time, that is likely synergistically higher cancer risk if you think about it mechanistically. And that kind of ties in with something that we've spoken about. And I think I heard you talk about probably two, three years ago at this point is, you know, the metabolic damage of these weight loss and gain cycles that happen over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. where people get proportionately fatter each time because they're losing lean body mass. Mm -hmm. And then they're you know, metabolic rate is going to just keep dropping and dropping and dropping. You're digging yourself into a deeper hole. Why is it unhealthy for bodybuilders to do GH and then bulk and cut? You see a ton of rates of cancer. We mentioned before, I believe Dallas McCarver. 20 something years old. Had a thyroid carcinoma. um, And we've seen a much higher cancer incidence in bodybuilders and also just individuals utilizing exogenous growth hormone or exogenous insulin Uh, type one diabetics. I think in the past year, there was a study there, but if you break them down by their insulin dose, those that were taking more insulin, um, this was normalized to body weight. Mm -hmm. Those people had higher rates of cancer. It's just frustrating to see 20 or 30 years ago after the new England journal of medicine study on HGH and, you know, it's a miracle drug body composition, less fat, more muscle, better sleep, better aesthetics. And then all of a sudden we realized, yeah, we really shouldn't be doing this because we're growing all of our tumors and causing, also causing metabolic syndrome, uh, HGH induced um, insulin resistance, insulin yeah. resistance, and even diabetes, similar to uh, essentially the same as gestational diabetes, which is caused by human placental lactogen, uh, molecule from the placenta, very similar to growth hormone. Um, 
But now we're kind of repeating that cycle because HGH is not cool and bodybuilders should be shamed for using it, but everybody should take a GHRP peptide like tessamorelin or CJC, uh, which we've also talked about, or uh, GLP-1. Yeah, and I think part of the problem there is it's just the, there's no large-scale studies of these things. Um, in some cases, there are fairly decent-sized studies, um, but those are for specific medical conditions where the benefit definitely outweighs the risk for most people, yep. as opposed to a uh, average person of the population who is metabolically unhealthy, mm -hmm. who is taking these because they heard that everyone needs to be on peptides and they're the new latest and greatest thing. Yeah, I'm just taking it to be a little bit more shredded. <laughs> Let's see. And then we, we talked about the full body MRIs briefly. Um, yep. Incidentaloma. So that's a, a new term. Was that, was that a term before full body MRIs were a thing? I believe it was, but now it is more common than ever. So uh, in radiology, um, incidentaloma means it is a finding, whether it's a tumor or a cyst or uh, an artifact that is uh, otherwise not going to have any negative consequence on somebody's life, but it's an incidental finding. Oops, we found it. Now we kind of have to deal with it and follow it up. Yeah. And what you see, I mean, someone is going to get a pernuve. I'm sure it's happened. There's yep. a little bit of subluxation of one of the vertebrae yep. and it's noted. Um, and then all of a sudden this person is thinking, oh, you know, I, my back isn't exactly how it used to be. I, I think that is bothering me. Mm -hmm. And we know this with people who get um, just, you know, regular run of the mill x-rays of their you know, lumbar spine or MRIs of their spine. They're more likely to go on to have surgery and have you know, worse function. And there's a lot of confounders there, but it's important to just remember that what you see, you know, say specifically from a musculoskeletal standpoint, really doesn't correlate with the physical function of that person a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, getting one of these scans, it's essentially a commitment to multiple scans because the likelihood, more likely than not, you will want to have follow-up scans. I haven't seen one yet that didn't recommend following up in 12 to 24 months, hmm. if not sooner. <laughs> um, and more often than not, you also find incidental findings. You can find uh, things like white matter hyperintensities in the brain, which are kind of expected as decades of life go on. Um, you know, if you're 30 or 40, then you could have up to three or four of these that are completely normal. They can also be signs of ischemia. So um, for a biohacker, extremely concerning. Um, for a biohacker that played a lot of football and did sports and basketball and wrestling and whatnot, then extremely likely to see that. Um, could just be scar tissue from a, um, a concussive damage. Yeah. yeah. So that's something. Um, and a lot of times you also see them in the lungs and in the liver. Yeah. And this point here about uh, they can cause significant stress and they should not be as easy to purchase as your Omega Quant test from Amazon. Yeah. So we like the Omega Quant test, but I think the access. Sponsored. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the access like you're alluding to there is a little bit, it's a little bit too lax where people I don't think are truly understanding what they get into. With, with the counseling on these, is that done on the front end before people get the test or is that only after they've gotten the MRI results? Do they have a, a visit with a physician? If you get them via retail, I'm sure you at least have an intro call with some sort of care coordinator or whatnot. But it's not like you're talking to your regular doctor that knows you and your values about this test. Um, so just like uh, ideally uh, the doctor that you've known for quite some time, ideally he or she would order 
um, you know, genetic tests or imaging tests where they can give you a bit better um, informed consent before you get the test. Yeah, similar to you know our practice, just like all of these. I, th- I guess you could say we're kind of sticklers for uh, people understanding the risks of whatever they're doing or not doing. Yep. Um, another note about the test is that it is good for people with high pretest probabilities. So uh, you're more likely to find something that's actionable that you can actually improve, whether it's an aneurysm or a tumor, cardiomegaly, um, rather than just finding those uh, you know incidental calcifications in the lung and the liver that you see so often. So that's something to chat about. I have seen these tests come back with PIRAD scores, which I think is awesome. Um, but um, yeah, these do not have MRI. Uh, I think both the Ezra and the Pernuvo are both like pretty high resolution scans and they give you pictures, give you a very nice experience. Um, and I think I've even heard people say that high resolution scans are just as good for detecting like multiple sclerosis and things like that. But every other radiologist that's not on the payroll for one of these services that I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot, <laughs> say, um, again, not my area of expertise, but I've talked to a lot of them um, for certain things like that. Uh, yeah. And also pituitary adenomas. You can see a pituitary adenoma if it's big enough on one of these scans. But, uh, you know, it's not going to get better than a contrast enhanced MRI that's specifically trying to look at the pituitary, yeah. the cell turcica, and enhance that area. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good summary for people. So hopefully we didn't go we didn't go off on too many tangents, but just um, enough. They'll they'll forgive us if we if we happen to. So hopefully after listening to this, you have a, a good idea of what the I guess standard of care you know, cancer screening options are. You know what multiple cancer early detection consists of, um, and you know take some time to kind of internally think about where you stand in terms of how aggressive you want to be with you know, screening, you know, whether you think you're someone mm-hmm. who wants to know these things. Uh, if some people have good insight into their psyche and other people uh, need other uh, some other input from you know, a therapist or a medical mm-hmm. provider to say, hey, let's um, you know work on this for a little while and then maybe we come back to it. Um, just because there's a lot of health anxiety that is potential from these tests and yep. screenings. For more info, uh, please see our podcast on rapamycin. Perhaps we touched on quercetin and a few other um, potential longevity agents in that one. And as always, thank you for the time listening. We hope that it's given you a balanced approach to health. And may God bless you with health and happiness. 